Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Attorney Vincent Davis, and we're on the show, Get Your Kids Back, How to Fight CPS and Win. Today, we're going to be talking about a lot of things. We only have an hour. I'm going to try to give you some tips today on three different segments of a juvenile dependency case, tips for parents and relatives. And also, um, we're going to be having a special guest uh, at the 8.30 hour, Attorney Sherman Amazon. Um, The first tip that I want to speak about today, and uh, it's going to be on the topic of the six-month review. In juvenile dependency cases, after the disposition hearing, uh, and that's where the court makes an order to either return your children or keep them in foster care or keep them with relatives, the law requires in California that the case be reviewed every six months. So generally that's governed, uh, those hearings are governed by California law. And the two laws that I'd like you to look up and read on Google are California Welfare and Institutions Code 366.21E and then 21F. They're different uh, sections, but they're generally the same type of hearing. And it's important at those hearings uh, that you and your attorney confer and strategize about the witnesses you're going to call for that hearing, uh, how your testimony is going to proceed at that hearing, and uh, the exhibits that are going to be used at the hearing. So in a typical case, um, what you would want to do is you would want to make sure that your attorney has subpoenaed in the witnesses that need to testify. And that could be, for example, you and or the other parent, the children, and then the service providers that you participate with. In other words, you have uh, been taking certain classes, going to certain counseling. Uh, you want those people to be there because necessarily or not necessarily, their letters or reports will not be admitted into evidence. The first person you might want to have is your counselor. Uh, The second person you might want to have is your parenting instructor. And then there are certain types of counselors that you may have with respect to uh, domestic violence counseling, drug abuse, uh, rehabilitation counseling, uh, sexual abuse counseling, You want to have those counselors there, and you want to make sure that you and your attorney um, contact those counselors and make sure that they're going to say favorable things. It would be helpful for you to get a a letter or a certificate of completion for these counselors so that you can also present that to the court as well. The next thing that you want to do is you want to make sure that these people are subpoenaed to court, and your attorney can arrange for that to happen. Uh, Subpoenas are generally uh, one page in California, a one-page form. You can also find those on Google. And you can help your attorney uh, fill those out and give them to your attorney to have them served on the witnesses, or your attorney can instruct you on how to serve the subpoenas or to get the subpoenas served. As a party to the case, you cannot... um, Uh, serve those subpoenas yourself. 
The next thing that you want to go over with your attorney before the hearing, and this should be a few days before the hearing, not the morning of the hearing, is that you should uh, sit down with your attorney and discuss your testimony. Now, you're required to always tell the truth, and that's what I uh, require of my clients. We don't want anybody to lie under penalty of perjury. Um, it is in California. We should understand, and we want you to tell the truth. Tell the court exactly what you've been doing uh, since the last disposition hearing, and you know, show the court that the children uh, should be returned to you or in the alternative that your visitation schedule should be changed. In other words, that you should have uh, more frequent uh, visitation, longer duration, and um, that it should be uh, perhaps unmonitored. Or it should take place not in the social worker's office. It should take place at you know, the local McDonald's or uh, at, even at your home. So a lot of times the social workers will recommend very conservative and very strict visitation regimes, um, and that may not be supported by the law. So it's one of the things that you want to bring up in court. Now, the other thing that I like to bring up in court at this at the six-month hearing is I'd like to get the kids placed with relatives, friendly relatives. Many times I come in on a case after the disposition hearing, you know, discussing evidence about relative placement should have taken place. And many times there's families uh, with many members of the families all over the United States, all over the world, who could take these children. And yes, I said all over the world. Um, I recently had someone tell me, as they, many people do all the time, the social worker told me we can't place the children with relatives because they live outside the county. The social worker told me we can't place the children with relatives because they live outside the state. The social worker told me uh, we can't place the child or children with relatives because they live out of the country. All of those are false. And in California law and under uh, federal law, children can be placed anywhere. So a lot of times here in Southern California, we get uh, relatives who live in Central or South American countries. Children can be placed with these relatives. And sometimes um, social workers would rather return the child to the parent or place the child with what is called a questionable relative because perhaps you know, some criminal background uh, than have the child placed in another country. Uh, it's always been my theory that uh, since the money follows the child, uh, social workers and counties want these children to stay within the county, and uh, they have control of these children when they're in the county. When children are placed outside the county, uh, other social workers in other counties, states, or countries have control over supervision of the child. So always remember that always bring up the fact that you can request and almost require uh, the social worker to place your child uh, outside of the county or outside of the state or even in another country. And in a lot of cases, that's better than having the child um, adopted by the foster parent if you're not able to get that child back in your home. Now, before I go on to the next topic, I'm going to so we're getting kind of backed up. 
The first call that I'm going to take is area code 951, and it ends in 26. Good morning. You're on with Attorney Vince Davis. Good morning. My name is Irene. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Do you have a question or a story you'd like to share with us? I have a story I'd like to share. I am about a, almost a year, probably last March. Um, we're at my grandma's, and, and um, CPS had came over there, and um, they... They told they the obligations weren't on me, but they came and um, they pretty much told me that um, I couldn't. I, well, they weren't on me, but they ended up wanting to drug test me, and so I did. I refused, and my boyfriend was living with my grandma at the time because he was a caregiver, and he had his kids. I have mine, and he um, she pretty much. I told her I wanted to um, drug test because the obligations weren't on me, and she said that I had to. Anyhow, they um, <clears throat> they called the police out there, and I told the police, well, I'm not on probation or parole, so I'm not going to give you any tests. Anyhow, I, I asked the social worker if she talked to the person that made the allegations before she came talk to me. She said she didn't have to. Anyway, she harassed me throughout the house. Um, we're outside. She harassed me. Then she asked if we were doing drugs, and I, and I said no. My boyfriend had stated that he just smoked marijuana, and she said, well, it's okay. You, um, we're not here for you. Anyhow, because I was red flagged, I felt like my rights were violated. She, um, she, she took the kids. They were placed with the other grandmother, who was the one that made the allegations. And they were in the process of giving my kids up um, to the grandmother, like for adoption. They were already gonna have them adopt the kids. And then they ended up taking my boyfriend's kids. They called another social worker. And um, they took his kids. Anyhow, up to Columbus Day, they're still harassed. They still came into my house harassing me. They, they, they made me drug test. They said they didn't need a warrant. So I told them, I, you need a, a warrant. And they came already prepared with police officers and um, two social workers. They made me and my boyfriend drug test. I had lost my kids for about three, four months. They made me um, take do, do some drug counseling classes, which I didn't have. And... Um, they weren't going to give my kids back. So I had, in June, I had went and um, took them. But the whole time that the grandmother had them, we were, you know, I guess we were allowed to talk to them or see them for an hour or two, but she would always call the police on us, even to go visit the kids. So I had to pretty much take my own kids. Then they wanted to get me for kidnapping. And um, they were um, stereotyping me that I was on heroin and, and, um, methamphetamines, but none of that was true. So anyhow, I feel like I walk on eggshells each time because, you know, it's been like so many allegations made, and I still don't, you know, I feel like they just, they, they, they tore my family apart. Like I stopped talking to my father. My boyfriend still hasn't, hasn't, he doesn't get his kids back yet. And, you know, it's just, it's a mess. So... Let me ask you a question. When did all of this happen? Excuse me? When did all of this happen to you? This happened in March of last year. Okay. And I finally had it. Okay, well, it's not too late. It's not too late to get your children back. 
let me tell our listeners and you this. When a social worker comes to your house, unless they have a court order or a warrant, which they have to show you, you do not have to let them in your house. I don't care if they show up with, you know, 10 policemen and five social workers. Unless they have a warrant, they cannot get into your house. Do you understand that? Yes. Okay. Now, you can agree to let them in. That's one. That's a whole other thing. If you don't agree, you, they can't come into your house. The second and most important thing I want to tell you about your call, and I keep hearing this all the time, when a social worker shows up and says to you, you have to take a drug test, you do not have to take a drug test ever for the social worker. Now, the social worker can say, well, if you don't take a drug test, I'm going to go get a warrant to try to take the children, she can do that. But that doesn't mean she's going to be successful in getting the warrant or court order to take your children. So you don't have to drug test under any circumstance. Three, the social worker in the majority of cases cannot take your child unless she has a warrant or a court order. Now, there are some situations, very rare situations, where a, child, a social worker can take your child without a court order or a warrant, but it has to be in what's called in the law an exigent or emergency circumstance. And that's tantamount to the social worker seeing, you know, the alleged abuse occur on the child. Now, a social worker can get a warrant for several other things. A social worker can get a warrant to come and inspect your house. A social worker can get a warrant to inspect your child or children. A social worker, of course, can get a warrant to take your child or children into custody. But guess what? A social worker cannot get a warrant to make you talk to them. So it's always my general advice that you don't talk to social workers when they come out. Now, I'm not saying be mean and, you know, be uh, unreasonable or uncivilized to the social worker. You just don't have to talk to the social worker, and you can tell the social worker you were advised to do that by an attorney. The next thing that I wanted to ask you is, you know, um, what has happened in your case sounds like a travesty of justice. Do you have an attorney that's working with you right now? I'm talking to one. I I need I meet with um, the Monday. Okay. In the past, though, did you have an attorney representing you in court? No, my, it wasn't a court. It didn't become a court case on mine. It was just an investigation. Have you talked to that attorney and strategized with that attorney? Yes, I have. Okay. And have they been successful? Uh, it doesn't sound like I'm sorry, it doesn't sound like they've been successful in your case. Well, I mean, um, they're gonna. Well, we talked to them, and, and um, like I'm supposed to meet with them Monday to see they'll pick up the case. Okay. Um, I want to tell you that since your case started in March, in my opinion, you still have sufficient time to turn this case around and get your children back. So never give up. All right. Okay. And thank you for your call today. I appreciate it. Before I go to the next call, I am going to talk about the detention hearing. Uh, This is the first hearing that you attend, 
at the juvenile court. And generally, it's a hearing where the uh, children to your custody, even though the social worker took the children. And in some cases, the court on its own may take the child into custody, if the, even if the social worker didn't. I've seen a couple of those cases in the past six months, very unusual search, uh, situations. Um, at this hearing, um, well, first of all, the hearing is governed by California Welfare and Institutions Code Section 319. Google it. Read it. Um, you have the right to cross-examine the social worker. You have the right to present evidence at that hearing. Now, I'm not saying that in every situation you should do that, but you should consult with the attorney who representing you, be that a private attorney who you have hired or a uh, court-appointed attorney, but you need to uh, at least know that you have that right. And in some situations, you know, you can put the social worker who took your kids on the witness stand, and you can get testimony from that social worker. And even if you don't get the children back at that hearing, um, you at least have your have that social worker's testimony locked in under oath because they had to actually get, in the, get on the witness stand, swear under penalty of perjury about thinking about your case. So it could be beneficial for you to have or to at least um, present some evidence to the judge or at least cross-examine that social worker who took your child. Um, I'm going to need to take another call before I get to our next tip this weekend. And it's... Um, the caller's area code is 626, and it, the uh, phone number ends in 69. Hello, you're on with attorney Vincent Davis. Hi. Hi. How are you this morning? I'm okay. Good. Uh, do you have a question or a story you'd like to share with us? Yeah. I um, Back in November, my... My children were detained based on a report that was given to the social worker by my son's therapist office. The report was that the report was false. The report was that I had somebody driving me and my children um, with alcohol on their breath. However, they did not detain that person because that person was never there. They used that allegation to detain my children. Um, and then at the jurisdiction hearing, which we actually had asked for a contested hearing, I do have a private attorney. That attorney, um, or they actually told me that we were going to do mediation. We had asked for a contested hearing. They said, oh, no, we're not doing a contested hearing. We're doing mediation. And then an argumentative, if you want an argumentative. Well, an argumentative is just my word against the social worker, which obviously they believe the social worker the social worker made many allegations on alcohol abuse, which doesn't exist. I have received an assessment from uh, a Dr. Soltani in Orange County stating that I do not have an alcohol dependency. That was shown to the social worker as well. Um, they dropped those allegations, dropped the allegations from the counselor's office, but did not allow for any kind of hearing. No evidence has been presented to the judge and have now moved forward with the six-month care plan. Um, 
requiring me to go through rehab, counseling, domestic violence classes, parenting classes, etc., prior to the six-month hearing uh, and monitored visits. They they actually removed my kids from San Bernardino County and put them in Orange County with a person that actually was a claimant in the family case. So at this point, we're looking at the six-month review, but I'm trying to find out if there's something I can do in the interim because of what occurred, because nothing, I've not been allowed due process. Yes, there is something that you can do. Um, first of all, let me ask you this. When is your six-month review hearing? June 22nd. Oh, so you just you just had your disposition hearing um, recently then? December 22nd, yes. Right, right, right. And where was your case? What county? San Bernardino. Okay. Um, just out of curiosity, there are four judges in San, San Bernardino Juvenile Dependency Court, Departments 4, 5, 6, and 7. Who was your judge? I don't have that in front of me, but it's a female judge, and apparently she's new. But we've really um, not presented any evidence in an actual hearing. All they've done is present the social worker's report, and then we argued in the mediation the verbiage itself and got the verbiage reduced drastically. But in doing that, they forced me, coerced me to waive my rights to a hearing because otherwise it would have been an argumentative hearing or we could ask for the contested hearing, which we were supposed to have that day. But it would be push it out another two months or so. Okay. So let me tell you what you can do. Um, and it, is that your phone ringing? It's okay. Okay. Any way you can turn that off? Because <laughs> we're all hearing yeah. it. Yeah, it's done. Go ahead. Okay. So here's what you have to do, and you probably are you probably are not going to be able to do this with your attorney. Um, you may have to get another court-appointed attorney. Or did you say you had a private attorney? I do. Okay. Or get another private attorney. Um, you're going to have to make a motion to set aside your what they call plea and the judgments and orders that were made at the last hearing based upon several things. And, you know, whether you can use these or not, I don't know, uh, because I don't know enough about the case. But one of the things that you can argue is that um, basically that you were misled. And number two, there's something, a related topic called ineffective assistance of counsel, IAC. Um, and that's where your attorney, uh, you know, didn't do his or her job the right way. Um, so you can file that motion and you can set it on for hearing. Uh, generally, the motions are heard very quickly in that courthouse. Um, the other thing that you can do is you can file what's called a 388 petition. And that's to change the orders that have been made with respect to you. And the last thing that you can do is, um, since you have recently um, had your hearing, if it hasn't been 60 days, you can file what's called a notice of appeal. You could appeal what happened to a higher court, or you can file what's called a writ, W-R-I-T, to a higher court to have everything set aside. Now, I'm not telling you that all or any of these things would work for you. I just don't know um, enough about the case, enough about the facts 
Um, you ask me, what could you do? And those are things that you could do. If you want to, you can give me a call. You can call my office today and make an appointment just on the phone, on Skype, or in person, and we can meet and we can talk about this in more detail. And I can give you some better, maybe better, more specific solutions that can uh, fit your situation. But I would tell you this. In case none of those things work, you should make sure that you're participating in that plan, even if you disagree with it, even if you thought it's bogus and, you know, that you were done wrong in the case. Because if none of my suggestions work, you're going to be stuck with having to do that plan in order to get your children back. One last thing I want to ask you is, where are your children right now? Are they in a foster home? Okay, I think we lost that caller. Um, before I get to the next topic, because the calls are backing up, I'm going to take another call. The area code is 562. And the um, hello, this is Attorney Vincent Davis. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How are you, Mr. Davis? Good. Hi, what's your first name? Daniel? I can barely hear you, sir. Okay, can you hear me now? Can hear you loud and clear now. Did you have okay. a question? Did you have a question or story uh, you'd like to Yeah, I'd just like to share a story. Okay. I've uh, had open case now for 23 months and, uh, you know, did all the mandates that was uh, asked of me. And uh, I'm not the offending parent again. And fortunately, I had your law office to help. I had a private attorney previous, and it just seemed to drag on and on and on and on. And, um, you know, it's really a challenge, and people really need to look at your website to gain some knowledge of uh, what they can do. Because this is a a specialty, and for an individual to go in and think that they're going to challenge the system or try and work with them, it doesn't quite work out. Um, I was uh, granted a detention release order on December 18th with my daughter. Now the grandparents on the other side are trying to fight with me, which they have no rights. Uh, The mother's rights were terminated, but the grandmothers on the other side are now calling in false allegations. I had a social worker come in and uh, they're doing a review now. There was allegations of abuse with my daughter, and the, the social worker looked at my daughter. There's nothing wrong with her. My house is clean. There's food in the cabinets. Her sheets, her clothes, everything are clean. She's happy. You know, I'm doing what I'm supposed to as a father to take care of my daughter. Uh, supposed to have a uh, review on the June 17th, and they're supposed to close the case out. I don't know how long it's going to keep dragging on after that. I hope that this is the end of it, but I appreciate your help. And uh, anyone that gets into this thing and thinks it's something simple, they really need to hire a private counsel that's extremely experienced in this area because uh, if you want your kids back, there's a whole thing that's about the children 
they, everyone was pointing their fingers at me, criticizing me, ridiculing me. And I'm like, it's not about me. It's about my little girl. It's about my daughter. She's going to be two next month. And it seems that DCSF, and they kind of lose focus of what the whole thing's about, you know. Um, I would, would uh, be nice if someone was offering, hey, let me help you out. You're doing a good job. Let me let me offer this or that. They don't. And I don't care about all that, but when people are pointing fingers at you, I kind of ignore it, but you can't ignore it. It's it's there, and you got to do the best thing that you can to get your child back. Choose your words wisely. Something you may say thinking you're doing okay can completely get twisted and turned around. So there it is, sir. Well, thank you for your call. I appreciate your call and your advice to our listeners. And I appreciate I'm going to take another call, but before that I do before I do that, um I'm getting messages from my office. Um I want to tell you about a seminar that we do um once a month. Sometimes we do it twice a month. Um and we have a seminar coming up uh on Saturday, January sixteenth, twenty sixteen, at ten AM to about one PM at the residence in in Manhattan Beach. This seminar is in different places every month, and this month, on uh, Saturday, January 16th at 10 a.m., we're going to be at the Manhattan Beach um, Residence Inn. At that seminar, uh, the seminar actually is titled The Secret, How to Fight CPS and Win. You can register for that seminar by going online to uh, www.helpfight.com cps.com that will take you to the Eventbrite registration page and you can register um, for that seminar. Uh, Please go to the seminar early. Uh, It is limited to the number of seating and uh, once it sells out, it sells out. And you'll probably have to wait until our February seminar. Okay, I'm going to take one more call and um, it's area code two one three, and the phone number ends in one one. Good morning, everyone. With Attorney Vincent Davis. Good morning. Okay, I, I perhaps you're not uh, hearing me, so I'm going to go to our next topic, our third topic for the for this show, and that's the topic of relative placement. Relative placement is extremely important, and it is extremely important for all of you, parents and relatives, to bring it up immediately once the case starts. And in addition to talking to the social worker, um, you must do these two things. Number one, Google. California Welfare and Institutions Code, Section 309. Read it. Inform yourself of what are the rights of the relatives. When you talk to social workers, let them know that you've read that section. In addition to talking to the social worker, I want you to Google California, excuse me, Google California Judicial Council Form, JV285. Judicial Council Form JV285. 
read that uh, form carefully. It's only two pages. It requires you to fill it out and file it with the clerk of the court. This form will give official notice to the judge and to the attorneys that you want to do something with this particular child. And on page two, it lists the things that you should check um, with respect to the child. Uh, it's number, page two, item number nine. It says, I want to have telephone contact with the child. I want to write letters to the child. Take the child on outings or on visitation. Take the child to and from school. Take the child to visits with brothers or sisters. Take the child to therapy. Take the child to family gatherings. Help the social worker make a case plan for the child. Take the child to visit with the parents. Take the child to medical appointments. Supervise the child during visits with brothers or sisters. Watch the child after school. Have the child live with me. That's an important one. Generally, I get relatives who say, hey, I told the social worker, you know, months ago that I wanted the child to live with me. And then the social worker is reporting to the courts. No, but relative, that relative never told me that they wanted to have the child live with them. So then this form, because it's filed and served on the judge and on all the attorneys and all the parties, tells it and makes it official that you're requesting to have this child live with you. If you're a relative, also talk to the social worker. Try to convince the social worker that the child is, should be placed with you. But let the social worker know that, you know, you talked or you heard an attorney say that a JV-285 should be filed. Do not let the social worker talk you out of uh, having that child uh, placed with you or without you filing uh, this JV-285 on your own. Okay. Um, right now, I'm going to bring on a special guest. He's an attorney. Uh, actually, currently, he's an attorney with my office. His name is Sherwin Amazon. Sherwin, are you there? Yes, I am. Good morning, Liz. Good morning. How are you this morning? Good. Uh, how are you doing? Good. Thank you for calling in. Sherwin, this morning I want you to, I'm going to ask you a few questions for our listeners, and maybe you can share your thoughts. It's called the practice of law. We all, all lawyers do things differently. And perhaps you look at cases and do things differently than I do. That doesn't make you right or wrong. It doesn't make me right or wrong. That's why they call it the practice of law. Sherwin, first tell us a little bit about your background and your experience as a lawyer. Uh, sure. My background, uh, I come from, uh, well, ethnically, I'm Indian or Iranian, a little bit of Russian, and I come from a family professionals. My parents are both uh, anesthesiologists, so I didn't want to be a doctor, so I became a lawyer. Uh, legal background, I went to Arizona State University, and when I came out, <clears throat> excuse me, I was actually a minor's counsel at the Children's Law Center of Monterey Park uh, for uh, roughly about seven, eight months, so I did see a lot of cases with that. Uh, after that, I practiced collections law, uh, mostly uh, creditor's rights for a little bit, and then I started my own law firm, and then I was fortunate enough to uh, come to work for the law office of Vincent W. Davis and Associates, where I currently practice. Well, you're too kind. You're too kind. How long have you been a lawyer? Uh, I've been a lawyer for roughly, this is, uh, I'm going to be entering law office. <laughs> so quickly, but this is roughly my fourth year of practicing law. Okay. And now that you're 
me, what type of cases do you primarily work on? Oh, the only ones I work on are juvenile dependency cases. That's my uh, area of expertise, and uh, I feel very comfortable in juvenile dependency. Now, you said that um, in your legal career, you worked as a a court-appointed child's attorney? That's correct, yes. Uh, I did work at Monterey Park's uh, heavy caseload. I had roughly 335 children who were my clients at that time. Wow, that's a lot of clients. <laughs> it's typical, actually. That's a, unfortunately, when you work for them or you work for Ladle, which is Los Angeles uh, Dependency, uh, usually, that's usually it's a nonprofit that handles parents. You'll have roughly 300 to 350 clients. I see. Um, tell me something. Is the minor's uh, attorney an important figure in a juvenile dependency case? Oh, I, I think it's very important. Um, when you're a minor's attorney, you're supposed to be looking at the child's best interest. So often in a case where it's very adversarial, we have the department on one end that's usually uh, very conservative. The ones that, you know, the petition, of course, that's filed against the parents sustained and uh, wants to achieve certain ends. On the other end, you have parents and their attorneys, whether they're court appointed or, uh, you know, they're privately retained counsel who are fighting for the release of the child back to the parents. And caught in the middle is the minor's counsel. And often the minor's counsel, I think, almost uh, functions almost like an amicus in the court where they're kind of, you know, thinking of the best interest of the children and they're kind of neutral until, you know, they lean one way or the other. And often as a, um, you know, a, a representing the parents, I often want to try to get the minor's counsel to at least, you know, see my side of the fact pattern because if you can get them on your side, um, you know, having them argue as well, I think that opens up the judge's eyes. Otherwise, the judge you know, he or she will believe the narrative that the department and the social workers are kind of spinning on the case. I see. Very interesting. Do me a favor. Tell me, tell me what is the most troubling case you've ever been on or seen? Well, uh, the most uh, troubling one, I personally was representing a, a child that was involved in a famous case that was on national news where some parents in Colorado had, um, I think they had uh, either murdered or one of the children in their care had died somehow, and they had buried them underneath the house. Then they'd absconded to California where fugitives. They had been caught here in Southern California, and the two children, the older brother, uh, both of them entered the juvenile dependency system. So just that fact pattern was horrific. But um, personally, I feel like any case in which a child is taken away, and a lot of times the uh, parents are just kind of shocked by how the juvenile dependency system functions, and they feel like they're in some kind of nightmare scenario because a lot of times they feel like, you know, hey, these, these allegations are untrue and, you know, the social workers make me look look like this horrendous monster when I'm in fact not or this is just preposterous. And uh, I think the fact that children are involved, and that's a very touchy subject, it, it just makes it a really horrific case. So just I, I think every case is difficult, especially for certain certain ones of my clients who are involved in it. No, you were actually involved in that case? I was briefly. I had represented, uh, so they had, uh, when you're a minor's attorney, sometimes if there's a conflict in the case, they'll split up a representation of children. And the older brother, I believe he had almost come to the age of uh, emancipating out of the system, but he was a great older brother. I think once he turned 18, he'd gotten a tattoo of the younger brother who was a believe about, you know, almost an infant, like two or three years old. I had represented the uh, younger brother in that case, and the older brother was trying, his whole thing was, I want to go to college, but I also want to be able to 
you know, get on my own two feet. And he wanted to adopt the younger brother because he loved him that much. And he'd actually, like I mentioned, gotten a tattoo of him. So it was an interesting case because the parents were obviously incarcerated. And, uh, yeah, so I was involved briefly in that case, but just the fact pattern was horrendous. But you, you see a lot of really bad cases, and especially involving children. But I feel like children are, you know, some of the most uh, um, at-risk members of our society because often they're not able to speak up. They're dependent on their parents. So, you know, there's a lot of bad cases, unfortunately, in juvenile fantasy. Since, you, since you've been with my office, uh, what's the most troubling case you've seen? Uh, most troubling case I've seen, I, I've seen uh, allegations against uh, clients who, are, and I don't want to name names, obviously, and I had a client that was a uh, literally a hero. You know, he'd been in, you know, the service, I'm not going to say which branch, but literally this gentleman had a bronze star, and, you know, his uh, daughter had made some statements in class one day, I think being influenced by another child that spent time with who the other child uh, was a friend, you know, a friend's adopted child who had been sexually abused, I think. This little girl kind of parroted some of the things, so the department came in, made accusations, and this client who had just got back from a you know tour of duty overseas, of you know especially in recent given recent lives of ISIS and everything, really the the you know defending our country, he'd been subject to being out of the house on a, a protective order for two months, couldn't see his children, couldn't see his wife, and for me, I, I thought to myself, this is very troubling because here's a man who has, you know, almost decades of military service, not a single complaint on his record, but he was still being treated like, you know, he was some kind of, uh, you know, uh, abuser or, or, you know, sexual molestation thing. And for me, that was very troubling because he had not one mark on his character through many years of service, but he was still treated like everybody else. So tell me, what were you able to do for him? Oh, we were able to uh, get the uh, children returned. First thing I did was I made sure to get them out of foster care because they were unfortunately being treated very poorly in foster care. One of the children had ringworm after three only three days in foster care. Uh, the mother, who was my client, had multiple complaints, but we were able to get the case closed out to terminate it at the uh, jurisdictional phase and have the children returned home. And that was, you know, I love getting a positive results and effectuating positive change in all my clients' lives, but I especially love that one because, you know, I try a little bit harder for our uh, brave men and women who go overseas and really, you know, help us sustain this um, way of life that we love as Americans. Very good, very good. Now, as you as you sit there thinking about representing juvenile uh, dependency clients, parents, and relatives, um, what's the best tip you can give uh, to parents who are involved in these types of cases? Now, my best tip would be their interaction with social workers. I, I tell them, number one, proceed with caution. Because I think a lot of times social workers come across and they, you know, try to pretend like they're your friend or something like that. And I try to remind clients, I said, don't be unpleasant. We want to, you know, show them we're, we're coming from a spirit of cooperation. But at the same time, be careful what you tell social workers. Because a lot of times, and I think you, Vince, had, you know, taught me this, was that if you go into a meeting sometimes, if you, if you're not giving the answers that they have in their head that they want to hear, that they will sometimes pencil whip you and write this uh, thing, these things in reports where you think that's preposterous or did we even have the same meeting that occurred because that's not what I said. So I always tell my clients, number one, be pleasant towards the social workers or, you know, absent that, at least keep a poker face. And I know that it's sometimes frustrating dealing with these almost like, you know, um, you know Orwellian proceedings, but... Um, you know, go home and hit a punching bag, go scream, go work out, do whatever you do, but we don't want to be those people that yell or curse at the social workers. 
uh, but at the same time, be careful what you tell them because they are like kind of the contact point for the court and they hold a lot of power in, in the proceedings. And a lot of times the courts will defer to them, much like courts will defer to police officers in criminal proceedings. Well, that, that's very good advice. My grandmother once told me, you get more bees with honey. And I didn't understand that until I turned about 45 years old. And, <laughs> no, it's very true, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, you, um, you're you absolutely correct. The, when clients, if they are going to talk to social workers, they have to be extremely careful. Um, social workers will use whatever the, the, the parent tells them in reports and generally use it against them. In addition, if the case involves any type of uh, criminal proceeding, the social worker can um, be called as a witness against the client in the criminal proceeding as well. Um, so they have to be extremely careful. You know, um, I may have told you this, but I'll share it with our listeners. Um, probably a year, year and a half ago, um, I was sitting in the chambers of a judge who was doing one of our juvenile dependency cases. And the other attorneys on the case were in the room and we were having a conference about how we are going to proceed in this case. And um, I think I was gaining some uh, credibility with this judge during this conference. And then a very experienced county counsel told the judge, hey judge, Mr. Davis won't let his client talk to the social workers. Now, that actually wasn't correct. What I had told him and told the social workers was that they can talk to my client only if I'm present, which is their right in this country, representation whenever they interact with governmental authorities. But that had turned into... um, Mr. Davis won't let his client talk to the social workers. This is only a half truth. And the judge looked at me and said, Mr. Davis, I think you're playing games. And I was a little bit taken aback by that um, because I'm, you know, I'm a defense attorney. I don't want my clients saying anything that will hurt their case. And, um, you know, I, I mentioned to the judge in a very, very professional way. I said, Judge, you know, this is uh, how I defend my clients. And I've been doing it uh, for a very long time. Uh, but I, I lost some credibility that day with that judge because of what was said. And I tell clients this. I said, look, if you don't talk to the social, social worker, um, will it be used against you? Yes, probably. On a scale of 1 to 10, it'll probably be a five or a six. But the only alternative is that you talk to the social worker. And potentially, on a scale of one to 10, that could be an 11 against you. And it can be used against mm-hmm. you. So you're, you're, left, you're left picking um, the worst or the best of two possibilities. And so I always tell my clients, as a general rule, don't talk to the social workers unless I'm there. Now, unfortunately, all of my clients and all of our clients don't follow that. And many, many times they talk to the social worker, and then it's written down in the report, and the, and the client inevitably says, that's not what I told the social worker. They took that out of context. 
I hear that over and over and over and over. In many cases, mm-hmm. no matter what, no matter what county we're we're in, you know, this could be a Riverside case, it could be an LA case, it could be a San Bernardino case, it could be an Orange County case, it could be a case up in San Francisco, it could be a case up in you know Shasta County, case down in San Diego. I hear that all the time. So it leads me to believe that, you know, maybe this is a general practice. And since in a lot of situations these interviews aren't taped, that people either have different recollections and it's, you know, some people may be mistaken or they both may be mistaken. Or sometimes um, I get the impression sometimes that the social worker may have outright um, not been completely truthful, not been truthful at all. Reminds me of the reminds me of a case that I did um, where the social worker wrote in a report that a witness, the child's therapist, said something to the effect that um, the mom was emotionally abusive to the child. I called up that counselor and I talked to the counselor, and the counselor said, "I never said that." I brought the counselor in, put the counselor on the witness stand at the trial. The social, uh, the counselor said, "Hey, I never said that," and um, you know, it, it was just unbelievable. The social worker stuck to her story, claiming that the social that the counselor did say that. So you know, I wasn't there. I didn't. You know, I can't tell you what happened. All I can tell you is what the social worker is saying and what the counselor is saying. The same thing happens to parents when they talk to social workers. You know, um, it's, it's the parents' word against the social workers. And um, sometimes, or a lot of times, social workers are believed over parents. Not all the time, but a lot of times. Sherwin, I want to thank you for calling in this morning and sharing those thoughts with us. I really appreciate it. And I guess I will uh, see you next week. I'll see you next week, sir. My pleasure. Have a great morning. Okay, we're getting towards the end of the show. You know, there was one caller that uh, I think I cut off. Let me go back to her. Her number is uh, area code 213, ends in 11. Hello, ma'am? Hello? 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 Hi, this is attorney Vincent Davis. Did we get cut off before? Hello? Hello, this is Attorney Vincent Davis. You can hear me? I can hear you loud and clear, you... so can our Oh, can my our goodness. Listeners. I did not know I was actually going to get in. <laughs> um, hold on one second, if possible. I'm just I'm inside of a store, so I'm going to step out really quick. Let me let them know this is my basket. Hi, this is my basket. I'm just going to step out right there. Thank you very much. Okay, um, thank you for taking uh, my call. I um, am in, I registered for your seminar on Saturday, for next Saturday. Yes. And um, my situation is basically claiming that I have a mental health. They have a di- diagnosing me as bipolar. They basically made me surrender the children to my ex-husband uh, off of report that they said I gave them access to talk to my psychiatrist and I guess they told them that I never came back for my 
for him to reduce the dosage of the medication he was giving me. And I um, did not go back because my insurance was ending at the time, and I told the social worker that. The next thing I know, I get a call October 21st, please rush down to the office, and I go down there because I'm thinking, okay, whatever's going on with my children, I would need to be there. She basically says, you either surrender your children to the dad or we're going to file a warrant. So out of my fear, I surrendered the children to the dad, and they said, oh, we're going to have a seven-day meeting. Now, if you backtrack, they, social workers were called to my home back in May 26. I had no idea who called. Then five months passed, and they they come they posted a 30-day investigation, and then they come, uh, I thought everything was going to be closed. They come to my new home. I moved. I had another job, and they come to my new home and interview me and my children and my current uh, significant other, and the social worker verbally told me that she was going to close the ER referral and had apologized to me for being open for so long. Then weeks later, I'm being asked to surrender my children. Then we go to the first hearing, and oh no, first they had us add me at a VSM case, a voluntary family reunification case. After the the family decision meeting, they wanted to issue a warrant. Then, then they um, they decided well, we'll do a VFR case. I do the VFR case for one week. I went to my my children's school so that I could. Um, register them for the next school year, and I was told I violated the VFR uh, uh, plan by going to the children's school and then being allowed to see them in their classrooms. And then they immediately issued a warrant, and I had to take off work that following, that same Friday of that week. And then that's when they decided, well, we'll minimize your business to four hours a week and then come back December the 11th for a trial hearing. We get to the trial hearing, and the, the doctor doesn't show up. They subpoenaed the doctor. He doesn't show up. So the judge continues the hearing to February 1st, and then they want to subpoena my employers because they interviewed my job, the people at my job. And I'm like, is that even legal? Without my consent, they go to my job interviewing them. Well, So now I have a hearing on February 1st. Okay. Let me just say a couple of things. Uh, you indicated that you uh, signed up for the seminar next Saturday. Um, one of the benefits of having of coming to the seminar is that after the seminar, I sit down with you and I give you, I go over your case with you in detail. So we're going to be doing that. If you're coming to the seminar, we're going to be doing that next Saturday. The okay. Second thing that I the second thing that I want to tell you is that um, in certain circumstances, well, I would say in most circumstances, any attorney or any party on a case can subpoena in witnesses that they believe will help their case. And in this situation, um, they can subpoena in your employers. Now, what you should do is you should speak to your attorney, sit down with your attorney, and see if a motion to quash to quash the subpoena is appropriate because if it's definitely a type of subpoena that is going to be harassing and just trying to hurt you because you want to go to trial, for instance, your attorney may be able to quash that subpoena where your employers or your uh, co-employees would not have to be subpoenaed into court. 
Uh, I want to thank you for your call this morning, and I will see you next week. Um, thank you. Um, we're running out of time. I can't take any further calls. Uh, and in closing, I want to uh, remind you folks about the seminar next weekend. It is um, You can register it at www.helpfightcps.com. The seminar is going to be in Manhattan Beach Residence Inn, and uh, it's going to be from 10 to 1. And after that, I sit down with the uh, participants in the seminar, and I go over their case in detail one-on-one privately with them, Um, probably worth the uh, price of the seminar alone. In closing, I want to remind everyone that it is important if you're involved in this type of case that you get experienced and expert legal representation. These cases, as a caller earlier said, are very, very unique legal cases. There are unique legal rules and different laws apply. Not all attorneys are qualified to represent clients in this type of hearing, but in these types of hearings. Um, It's important for you to work with your court-appointed attorney and if you uh, have any reservations or any doubts, you're entitled to get a second opinion. So give us a call. The second thing I want to inform you is you need to get the necessary information uh, about the type of case you're involved with. That doesn't mean you're going to be an expert. That doesn't mean that you're going to be able to come up with a legal strategy that's going to work. Um, That doesn't mean that you should be representing yourself because you shouldn't. But you need to get the necessary information to give you a framework about these cases so that you can can assist your attorney. Uh, Download our free legal ebook at our website, helpfightcs.com, and meet with your attorney, your court-appointed or your private attorney. Meet with them. Meet with them in person, meet with them on the phone, exchange emails. You need to be strategizing with your attorney before you go to court, not the day of court. The last thing that I want to tell you is and remind you is vote. Exercise your power. Vote. Help change the laws. Help elect family friendly judges. Help elect family-friendly state legislators. And most importantly, let's organize county by county and statewide to have our votes and to have your voices heard. My name is Attorney Vincent Davis. We'll see you next weekend on the radio.